now we're going to be Bible reading. So if you would like to open your Bibles or read with me on the screen, 1 Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things under heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first um, to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions, to the praise of his glory. May God bless his holy words. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you on this gloomy London Sunday. Before we moved here, I thought every day in London was like this, and it's not, and so we notice it when it is. Uh, If you were here last week, you remember we started a new sermon series looking at the book of Ephesians, and today we're looking for the second week in a row at this passage in chapter one. We said last week it's one sentence in the Greek language, the language that was originally written in, verse three to 14, it's a glorious sentence. And I mentioned last week that what I wanted to focus on in today's sermon was the doctrine that you see appear in verse 4, then again in verse 11. Paul says, you were chosen. Verse 5, you were predestined. And then again in verse 11, Paul says, you were chosen, predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, this doctrine of what you might call election or predestination, really to say it simply, the idea that God has a plan and that everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in this world is unfolding according to that plan. Now, even as I say that, I know immediately for some of you, it raises questions that are confusing. Wait, God has a plan. Everything is predestined. The word predestined literally means to decide beforehand, to declare beforehand. And some of you say, does that mean we don't have responsibility? Do our actions matter? Others find that to be really frustrating. If the text says that in him we were chosen for salvation, does that mean we don't have a choice? This doctrine raises lots of questions. 
And so what I wanna do today is look at it. And first, I wanna show you a lesson in how to read scripture. Or you might say a lesson in reading and engaging with scripture's mysteries. Then second, we're gonna get into the doctrine of self and kind of consider what does it mean? What is predestination or election all about? And then third and finally, I wanna show you that in this doctrine, there is a deep and a surprising comfort. So a lesson in engaging with scripture. What is this doctrine all about? And a deep and a surprising comfort. You with me? Let's take a look. First, a lesson in reading and engaging with scripture's mysteries. Now, as a church family this year, our vision is growing in Christ and as a church for the city. And what we've been saying is that, as you know, to grow is not the same thing as changing. You know, people change all the time, but sometimes they get worse. We're interested not just in growth, uh, excuse me, change, but we're interested in growth. The word the Bible uses for that kind of growth is maturity. What does it mean to become a maturing person, a mature person in your spiritual life? And we said a few weeks ago that one of the tools to grow in maturity in your spiritual life is the Bible, engaging with Scripture. You can't really follow Jesus. You can't really grow as a follower of Jesus. You won't mature as a follower of Jesus if you're not regularly engaging with the Bible. But here's the other side of that. Sooner or later, if you read the Bible, if you have a daily intake of Scripture, if Scripture is shaping your life, sooner or later, you will read things in the Bible that bother you or that you don't understand. That will happen. You'll come across parts of scripture, stories in scripture, and you'll read them and you'll say, wait, what? And what scripture says will either bother you because you don't like it. It feels like it's confronting you. Or you'll just say, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. Let me give you a couple examples. Here, we're talking today about predestination or election. I'll come to that, defining it in just a few moments. But initially, even as some people hear me say that, some of you are thinking, that doesn't seem fair. I should have choices. I should have, you know, my actions should matter. I'm a free person. And so when you hear this idea of predestination, even before you've really explored what the Bible actually says about it, you just react negatively to it. And part of the reason for that is because you're a modern Western person. Or at least you live in a modern Western city. And in the cultural drinking water, dare I say, in the air we breathe as modern Western people, we've come to believe that freedom, looking inside ourselves, thinking about who we are, and then projecting that to the world, that is how you find your real and authentic self. And no one, no religion, no God, no other person, no family should be able to tell you who you are or how to live. So let me give you two sources on this idea that in our cultural drinking water and the air we breathe, we are individualists at heart and freedom has become a new kind of God. Let me give you two sources. The first is a woman called Tara Isabella Burton. She's a scholar, writes a lot about this. And she says, our purpose is to express our authentic selves and to pursue that self through freedom. We're totally free beings beholden to nobody but ourselves. And exerting that freedom is at the core of what it means to pursue the good. Our choices define and liberate us. 
And when we choose to reject existing outlines and predetermined scripts about what our life should be like, we're achieving something close to our purpose. She's a sociologist, scholar of religion and worldview. And she's saying, look, in our cultural drinking water, this is how people define identity and meaning. You look inside, you see what's there, and you project that to the world, and nobody gets to tell you that that's good or bad or right and wrong as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And if a scholar of religion isn't enough for you, how about Princess Elsa? No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. If you've seen Frozen 1, which I've seen, I don't know, about 400 times. And so whether it's a Disney movie that kids imbibe or scholars of religion, what are we saying? The way to find yourself, the way to be yourself is to throw off the script. Nothing is predetermined. You do you. That's in our cultural drinking water. And so when a pastor reads Ephesians 1 and says, today we're going to talk about predestination, immediately because of the culture that we're formed in, some of us bristle at the very idea that there is a God who has a plan. We have to acknowledge that. Sometimes scripture bothers us. But then other times, scripture just doesn't make sense. Sometimes there are things that you're going to read in the Bible, and when you confront them, you'll say, I don't understand how that works. It's confusing. Now, when you, as you read the Bible, and encounter something that bothers you, or you don't make, uh, doesn't make sense, you don't understand, a spiritually immature response is to say, well, it must not really mean that. Or, since I don't like it or since it bothers me, it can't be true. And to disregard it and dismiss it. And we're doing that all the time. Many of us have a patchwork faith in which we encounter things that God says to us encounter things that he asks of us and because we don't like it we cut and paste and we make a god or a bible in our own image and that's spiritually immature let me read to you this is dr martin lloyd jones he was a pastor at westminster chapel in the middle part of the 20th century actually in a sermon on this very passage ephesians 1 listen to what he said about this topic we're exploring he said many christian people today do not face the hard questions of the Bible at all. They avoid them because they're difficult and they're mysterious. There are many Christian people today who claim to be believers in the inspiration of the scriptures, but who nevertheless quite deliberately avoid large portions of the scriptures simply because they're difficult. But if you believe that the whole scripture is the word of God, such an attitude is sinful. It is our business to face the scriptures. Now, those are some hard truths. He's speaking pretty bluntly, but I must say I have to agree with him. If your conviction is that the Bible is God's word, then you don't get to pick and choose which parts of it are God's word. But you have to face all of it. And can I just say that the reason why picking and choosing and saying, well, I like that part, but I don't like this part, and that part makes sense, but this part's confusing, so I'm going to put it aside... The reason why that's actually so spiritually mature, you already know the answer but, or the reason, but, but think of it this way. If you have a real relationship with another person, you know that to have a relationship of closeness and intimacy, that person has to be able to confront you. That person has to be able to challenge you. I mean, could you imagine your closest friend and they come to you and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but you've just been speaking in such a way that's actually really hurtful to the people around you. And you're like, how dare you say that to me? 
you dare not confront me. Your friend would say, what are you talking about? We're friends. Like I need to be able to speak hard truth into your life because believe it or not, you are not a perfect person. And that depth of intimacy and real personal relationship requires someone to be able to challenge and confront you. How much more true with God himself? That if there really is a God out there and he really has spoken, then of course, at some places, his word is going to feel like a confrontation and a challenge. And only by embracing that and really wrestling with what he says rather than dismissing it can we actually experience spiritual maturity. Now, there's so many examples in scripture of how it can confront and challenge us. We're not getting into all those examples today, but this is one. Election, predestination, it bothers me. It doesn't make sense. The invitation is to wrestle with it, to engage with scripture and to see how God is challenging us in the midst of it. So that's what we wanna do now. Second point of our sermon today is what is this doctrine of predestination? What does it really mean? Well, said simply, verse four, verse 11, the doctrine that Paul's presenting is that God is in control of all that happens. And that everything that unfolds is part of his plan. I already said the word predestined literally means to decide beforehand. And everything that happens is not a surprise to God. He never wakes up. He doesn't actually wake up at all. But there's never a moment, there's never a day where God says, oh my gosh, I took my eyes off them for one second and look what they're doing. It's getting out of control. He's always on his throne, always in control. Everything is unfolding according to his plan. Now, let me just show you in the Bible a couple of verses that make this point. Isaiah chapter 46, God says, I am God, there is no other. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. I see the end from the beginning. It's all the same to me. And before it started, I can tell you how it's gonna end. That's what God says. Acts chapter 17 This is Paul speaking. God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling. Or Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a person, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You have your plans, you have your ideas, but it's God's purpose. That's what's gonna stand. So those are just a few random examples, but what's the point? Cover to cover in the Bible, Scripture's testimony is clear. God is in control. He sees the end from the beginning. His plan is unfolding. Whatever terms you prefer to use, election, predestination, sovereignty, that's what Scripture teaches. And immediately the questions start bubbling up in our mind. What about human responsibility? Do my actions matter? How does God's sovereignty relate to our responsibility? And this is where things get really tricky (laughs) because scripture is equally clear that you have responsibility, that your choices matter, that your actions have consequences and you're responsible for the things that you do. And furthermore, scripture is very clear that things you do change things. So let me give you a couple other examples. This is Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is about to leave the people. And he says to them, fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. That's interesting. 
I thought God predestines, but Joshua is saying, you choose, you decide this day whom you're going to serve. Like you have a choice. Here's another scripture, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If, Paul seems to be saying, the invitation is there in front of you. And if you believe, that is, if you trust, if you surrender, if you give yourself to Jesus, you get salvation. If you believe. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have not because you ask not. Like, There are certain things that you could have if you ask for them, but because you don't ask, you don't have them. It's a lot of responsibility. And so I hope you're staying with me. The Bible is really clear God is sovereign and in control. And the Bible is also really clear that your choices matter, your actions have consequences, what you do can change things. So here's the question. Is God sovereign or are you responsible for your actions? And the answer is yes. The mysterious, complicated, beautiful answer of scripture is that God is 100% in charge of all that happens and you are completely responsible for your actions and your choices matter. And you say, that doesn't make sense. Years ago, I read a book on this topic, changed so much for me and how I thought about it. It's by J.I. Packer. And he says, you know, in lots of life, we encounter what is called an antinomy. Antinomy. An antinomy is something that happens in which you look at evidence or you use your logic. And the conclusions that you must draw seem to lead to two different and sometimes contradictory outcomes. So he gives the example in his book. And if you're a quantum physicist, you know this. He says, light... Light, the thing that helps us see other things. Light, sometimes, depending on how you look at it, looks like a wave. But other times, light looks like a particle. Now, particles have mass, but waves do not. So, according to what we know from a perspective of science, that's not possible. Light should either be waves or particles, but it should not be both. It can't both have mass and not have mass. And yet, our physicists tell us, that's how it is. It's an antinomy. You do your best, you look at the information, you look at the evidence, and you come to the best conclusion that you can. And sometimes our ability to understand how that works is incomplete. And Packer says, if that's how it works with light, must it not be possible for the God who created all things to hold things together in perfect tension, things which to us don't seem to be able to live together in tension. Like how all things could be unfolding according to his plan, and yet at the same time, your actions and choices and decisions matter, and they matter profoundly. And they're real. It's an antinomy. And Packer says, if you're doing an honest reading of the Bible, the only thing that you can actually conclude is that God is totally sovereign and we are really responsible. It's the only way to read the Bible rightly, he says. And so he says, as he goes on in that great book, which I, again, I found very helpful. It's a longer quote, but it's worth it. He says, an antinomy is forced upon us by the facts themselves, unavoidable and insoluble. We don't invent it, we cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it. 
except by falsifying the very facts that led us to it in the first place. So then he asks, what should you do with an antinomy? Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. Put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. And he goes on. But do you hear what he's saying? If there's really a God out there, we have to acknowledge that it's possible that he's able to see how things work together in ways that we can't in ways that don't make sense to us. So when you encounter a mystery in scripture, something that doesn't feel like it fits or something that bothers you, he says, put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. That is said more simply, acknowledge that he's God and you're not. And he's able to hold things together that we can't see how it works. C.S. Lewis when he watched his wife die of cancer, was wrestling with some of this stuff. Is God, is this part of God's plan? Is this what God wanted? I mean, how do I, how do I make sense of suffering and illness and death and sorrow? So he's wrestling, watching his own wife die of cancer. And as he's bringing God all of his hard questions, and we ask hard questions, don't we, when we suffer? he realized that in asking God his hard questions, that sometimes we ask God questions that he can't answer. Not because God is unable, but because our minds can't comprehend. And he gives an example. He says, look, if a child comes up to you and says, how many hours are there in a mile? Or what shape is yellow? You'd look at that kid and say, I can't answer that. And the kid would say to you, well, didn't you go to uni? I mean, it's not a complicated question. Like, what shape is yellow? And at some level, you'd have you try to explain, try to think about the properties of things. But really what's going on is there's a gap in a capacity to understand. And Lewis says, what if most of our theological and metaphysical questions are like that? That we're asking God, what shape is yellow? How does sovereignty and responsibility work together? And so what's the invitation? It's to acknowledge that he's God and we're not. And therefore, this is not, by the way, blind faith. This is really thinking, really engaging with scripture and allowing it to speak for itself. And to say at the end of the day, there must be a card in his hand that we didn't know about. He must be able to see and hold things together that we can't fully comprehend. And so spiritual maturity is learning to live in that tension and not make a God in our own image and cut and paste the parts of the Bible. So a lesson in scripture reading (laughs) what predestination really is about and how it works together with responsibility. And now, relatively briefly, but actually the whole point of today's sermon, I wanna show you a deep and surprising comfort. The reason why I'm taking all this time to show you why reading the Bible like this matters. The reason why we're wrestling with predestination is not because it's academic or abstract. It's because in this doctrine is deep and surprising comfort. The word predestination appears six times in the Bible. And every single time it does, it's spoken as a comfort and an encouragement to people who are suffering. Every single time the word appears, it's meant to bring comfort. And so let me show you today how, yes, on the surface, it can be pretty confusing. 
But if you really grasp what Paul's saying here, it leads to comfort that's surprising and profoundly deep, meaning it's so deep that it can withstand any trial and trouble and suffering. So let me show you. Come with me to verse 10. Paul says in the passage, what God is doing is putting into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, verse 11, we're also chosen, having been predestined. In other words, what's Paul saying? God has a plan. Everything that happens in history is unfolding according to the plan. And what's the point? What's the end goal? Where's it all headed? Verse 10, he's bringing unity in all things. Now that word unity, it means healing. It means wholeness. It means bringing back together that which has been torn apart. We spent some time talking about this last Sunday, but to summarize again very briefly, what Paul's saying is the future, what God is doing is he's working all things together to bring ultimate healing and renewal so that the world that you actually want, that's the world that's coming. And Paul says not that everything that happens is good because lots of things happen that aren't good. Lots of things that happen are terrible. But God's power is such that even those terrible things that happen, he is able to work together those things in such a way that they accomplish unity and work together as part of his plan. And you know, we have example after example after example in the Bible of this. Think, for example, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the story of Joseph. If you've never read the story of Joseph, this is Genesis 37 through 50. Somebody's going to turn it into a movie one day. It's really, really a stunning story. But at the beginning of Joseph's story, he's sold and betrayed by his brothers. He's literally sold into slavery. Then he's falsely accused and he's thrown into prison. And in short, Joseph's life's falling apart. What you'd have to conclude if you were looking at Joseph's story is, wow, this is not how I plan things. This is not how I wanted things to go. And after about 22 years of things getting bad to worse to even worse, something changes. And I won't give you the whole story, but one day his brothers come back to him. And when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they're terrified. They think, oh my goodness, he's now have all this power. We sold him and he's gonna be so angry with us. And Joseph looks at them and he says to them, don't be afraid. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The saving of many lives. And because of what happened in Joseph's story, literally millions and millions of people were saved because of him. Joseph suffered profoundly and he was able to call evil, evil. We're not saying that everything that happens is good. We're not saying, hey, cheer up. There's a light at, you know, every, every tunnel leads to a light. There's a rainbow after every storm. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, here's the power of God. That even though you did wrong and there was evil and I suffered, God's power was still able to work. And what you meant for evil, and it really was evil, God was actually working according to his plan for good. And many people have been saved because of it. So that's a nice story. Yeah, it is a nice story. And the reason why it's so nice is because it points to the ultimate one. In Acts chapter two, Peter was preaching. Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus and Jesus had died. He had risen from the dead. 
And he was preaching what was effectively the first sermon ever in the church. And at one spot in the sermon, Peter says this. He's speaking to a crowd of people. He says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We read it again. Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. And you, with the help of wicked people, put him to death. According to Peter, who's responsible for Jesus' death on the cross? Was it God's deliberate plan or was it the actions of evil people? And the answer is, yes, you're getting it. And do you see what Joseph says? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives. How is that more than just an inspiring tale that happened many, many years ago? Because it pointed forward to the ultimate example of what people meant for evil, God was using for good, for the saving of many, many lives. Because Jesus is the greater than Joseph, the ultimate Joseph, who came to save and love and serve his brothers, and yet his brothers rebelled and betrayed him. And Jesus was thrown not just into a prison, but into the pits of hell as he died on the cross in the place of his people. And we look at the cross and at one hand, anyone looking at the cross would say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't, this is not how we would have planned it. And God says, I know you wouldn't have planned it that way. And that's why I'm in charge and you're not. This was my deliberate plan for the saving of many lives. And so what happens is if you're a person who's rooted in faith, the way you read the Bible is you say, yeah, I might not be able to understand what it means that God has a plan and that things are predestined. But when I look at the cross, I see that that was part of God's plan. And if that was part of God's plan, then I can trust him. Then I can rest in him, even when I don't understand what he's doing in my life, even when it all doesn't make sense to me. And you know what this means practically? Let me just show you a couple more things about what this works out like practically in your life. You see, if you really believe that God is at work, that in him you were chosen for salvation, that he has a plan and things are working out, do you know what this means? A couple things practically. First, it would lead to joyful humility. Sometimes Christians are smug and superior. We look down on other people. And I have to tell you that if you ever have that kind of attitude, if you ever look down on other people and think to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, I'm better than others, you don't really get the gospel. Because what is Paul saying here? Verse four, you were chosen before the creation of the world. In other words, why are you a believer in Jesus? Why do you have faith? Why do you trust God? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You weren't smarter or more moral or better than anybody else. It was purely God's sheer grace that chose you. And if you really get that, if you really believe that, it humbles you. You say, I have no reason to boast save in the grace of Jesus. I'm not better than another person. I'm not smarter than another. Christians should be the most humble people of all because we realize the most important thing about us is purely a gift of grace. Not something you've earned, not something you deserve. Joyful humility. 
But second, if you really take this doctrine into the center of your soul, do you know what it gives you? Settled assurance. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who come to me with some degree of spiritual anxiety. And they say, if it's true that God chooses or predestines, then how can I really know that I've been chosen? How can I know that he called me to salvation? And they're asking questions about assurance. But friends, don't you see? It's precisely because God chooses that you can have assurance. You see, if your assurance was up to you, your faith, your belief, your trust, do you realize how anxious and neurotic we would be? We would always be wondering, do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is it consistent enough? What about those days where I doubt? What about those days when I have spiritual lapses or I maybe get stuck in some habitual sin? And we would never have any real basis for assurance because we would be the own basis for that assurance. And we're fickle and changing and weak. But if it's true that in him you were chosen, then that means your assurance comes not because of the strength of your faith or the consistency of your faith, but because of the object of your faith. That it's Jesus who saves. He's the one, not your faith, but the one that your faith grasps. And do you realize what that means? Those who get to heaven with the strongest, most consistent faith and those who get there with the weakest and most fluctuating faith are still going to get there. Think about it this way. In Exodus chapter 14, God is bringing his people out of Egypt. And if you know the story, they're crossing through the Red Sea and they're standing there before the sea and the army that's threatening them is behind them. And so they're standing there and there's water in front of them. And God says to Moses and the people, go forward. And Moses is like, uh-huh, yeah, not possible. And, you know, the armies, and then God does a miracle and the water, the Red Sea parts. And God says, go forward. So the people start walking through the Red Sea. But just think about that for a second. Like you're walking through the ocean effectively and there's a wall of water on the right and there's a wall of water on the left. And you know, there were some people who were walking through that wall of water going, this is pretty sweet. This is cool. And there were other people who were walking through going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And you know what? They both got to the other side because it was not the strength or the consistency of their faith that saved them. It was God who invited them in. Assurance only comes if God is the one who gives salvation, who chooses, who calls, who saves and our faith is simply a response to what he's done. Tis not that I did choose thee for Lord that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee hadst thou not chosen me. It's all grace and that's the basis for assurance. Last thing, I said, if you really believe this, it gives you joyful humility. It gives you settled assurance and it can give you a restful hope. Restful hope. I said this last week, but where's Paul when he's writing Ephesians chapter one? He's in prison. His world's falling apart. He's cut off from his friends. He's suffering big time. And yet he's at peace. And he has hope. Even there in verse 13 and 14, he talks about the future that's coming and God's redemption. He says, the future is gonna be bright and glorious and I'm gonna be okay. He's got hope. Where does that come from? 
It's because he's able to say, despite appearances, I know that God is on his throne. That even though it doesn't look like it, I know that he's still working. Some of you today, some of you right now, look at your life and you say, this is not how I planned it. You've gone through things, you're suffering in ways, and you would say, this is not what I wanted with my life. Do you realize what kind of deep hope this doctrine could give you? You look to the cross, you see Jesus dying, and you see if God could plan that, if God could use Jesus's death, the death of the Son of God himself, to bring about the redemption of the cosmos, then he must know what he's doing. I can't see it. I don't understand it. And when you suffer, it's okay to say so. That's called lament. But deep down, when the sorrows are crashing, we are not without hope because he has a plan and he's bringing unity to all things and he can't be unseated from his throne. And if you work that into the center of your soul, it is deep comfort. It doesn't mean you don't weep. It doesn't mean we're not heartbroken. It doesn't mean we don't lament and grieve and work for justice. We do, but never without hope because we believe in a God who's on his throne and somehow his plan unfolds with our actions as part of it and with joyful humility, with restful hope and with settled assurance, we follow him. That's even what we do as we come now to the Lord's table. So let's pray as we prepare to respond. Our gracious God, all these things that we've talked about today, they're heavy, they're big, but they could transform us. So as we come now to our time of response, we ask and we plead with you for today's teaching to be much more, much more than just information. We ask that you would change us. We ask that you would help us to grasp these things so that we would have humility and assurance and hope in a world that is often difficult and hard and heartbreaking. So even now as we come to this table, feed us by faith, help us to grasp, to see Jesus. And even more than that, to know that we're grasped by him, safe in his love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.